0: It's a day through which we remember and commemorate Christ's death. It's called good because of what Jesus' death means for the redemption of the world. It's an ironic name, however, in light of the events that happened that Friday. And it's perhaps problematic uh, if we're supposed to to sit with that because it wants to reach forward. It wants to rush to. Uh, it wants to rush to Easter. It wants to justify the abandonment, the abuse, the affliction the assassination suffered by Christ. Now last night we sat with and feasted on Christ at His Last Supper. We experienced Christ's presence as we served one another through foot washing. But the service ended in darkness. You know, we turned off the lights, we covered the cross, uh, because Christ was entering into a dark place. And tonight we walk with Him in and through His sufferings, the betrayal, the arrest, the mockery, the false accusations, His beatings, ultimately His death on the cross. And the temptation that faces us, is, especially living this side of the cross, is to, to reach the resurrection too hastily, to get there too soon, to claim Good Friday as simply good and be done with it. But in doing so, we run the risk of cheapening Christ's sacrifice by excusing ourselves from owning up to the part that we played in that event. And we excuse ourselves from beholding the great cost that that Friday was to God the Father and God the Son. And so as a way of valuing and honoring Christ's sacrifice, our church tradition calls us to submit ourselves to 40 days of this Lenten fast and uh, this week that is intense, full of emotion and discipline, so that we may know Christ and the power of His resurrection, that we may share in His sufferings and become like Him in His death, that by any means possible, we may obtain the resurrection from the dead. The great tritium, Aubrey mentioned in an email, these three days leading to Easter, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and Holy Saturday, are more crucial than any other time in the Christian year, for it is a moment in time that defines all time for Christians. It's a moment in time that is the very sum and substance of our spirituality, for every season, for every week, for every Sunday, and every moment of every day. If we fail to experience this time rightly, we will will be robbed of the fullness of joy come Easter. For these practices, and walking through, it's through these practices, and walking through this darkness, we prime our hearts to experience the full joy of the resurrection. Mary Grace and I were talking about this, our maiden voyage through, uh, through Lent and Holy Week with a community. Uh, we're, like some of you, are new to Anglicanism. And, uh, and as we talked, we talked about our past experiences with Easter and how we knew that the day was supposed to be different than other Sundays, but uh, our hearts weren't prepared for it. And so a lot of times we felt like our joy was manufactured. It was conjured up because our hearts just weren't ready for it. And Mary Grace confessed that uh, she secretly sometimes wished that Easter would just get by. You know, so that we can get away from feeling like we're being fake and phony. And so my prayer tonight is that we will walk slowly with Christ through His afflictions. That we will meditate on Christ freely, giving Himself to these sufferings and to the cross. That through Holy Saturday, we will know something of the despair, the confusion, and the, and the confusion that the disciples felt that night as they saw Christ laid in a tomb, I believe that, and our church tradition affirms this, that this, this journey, going through this journey, our hearts will be primed, will be prepared, and our joy will be authentic as we recognize with the whole of creation that Christ is risen. But that's Sunday. Tonight we face darkness. We're in the gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Mark chapter 14. This Mark's passion narrative, he gives us quick snapshots, brief but profound glimpses into this darkest day of Christ's life. And uh, if we were to try and take our time (laughs) mining these things exhaustively, I'm sure uh, we would be here until Easter morning. So, to spare us that, uh, we're going to try and, and just survey this passion narrative through Mark, uh, surveying these snapshots into the Christ's uh, suffering, highlighting a common theme that runs through them, namely this mistaken identity on the part of Jesus' accusers as to who Jesus is and to who he really is. Now, our journey is going to begin. Uh, just prior to where we left off last night. It's going to be in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden Gethsemane is a name which means oil press. Now, to state the obvious, an oil press is a gadget that presses, it smashes, it squeezes olives in order to extract the oil from them. Uh, and as we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus being pressed. We see Him being squeezed. It says in verse 34, verse 14, that my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And then verse 35, Jesus walks away from his disciples, asking them to remain there. He walks away to pray, and he collapses. The weight of this cup that is set before him, it's too dark, it's too painful, it's too heavy. It is the wrath of God upon sin, which is why Jesus cries out in verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. This cup is dark, this cup is heavy, and so Jesus begs the Father to rescue the world some other way. But as an obedient Son, His humility shines forth, His love and uh, commitment to the Father shines forth, and He says, Not what I will, but what you will. Now, while Jesus is experiencing this turmoil, He asks His disciples to watch and to pray. This is a call to stay awake, to be spiritually alert, to pay attention. And he says in verse uh, 38 that the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Three times he asks them to watch and to pray, and three times he returns from his own prayer time to find them sleeping, to find them giving themselves in to the weakness of their flesh. This juxtaposition is striking. We see on the one hand Jesus whose flesh is taxed to the limit. He's running to the Father. And He's asking for a new way to save the world. And yet at the same time He's bringing His body into submission to God's will. Jesus has had just as much sleep as the disciples have. His flesh is just as weak. (laughs) But He's pursuing Christ. He's bending into the Spirit's willingness On the other hand, though, we see the disciples, and they sink deeper into failure, not watching, overcome by the weakness of their own flesh. Now, this episode in the garden prepares us to see Christ correctly as we walk through His trials, as we walk to the cross, and as we walk to the tomb. But this passage also challenges us to fight the weakness of our flesh as we are pursuing Christ, to lean into the Spirit, so it first prepares us by revealing Christ as deeply and authentically human. The sorrow and the grief that Christ experiences related to this cup of sin and death, the abandonment that He feels as His friends, fail to watch and pray with Him, are real and they're really felt by Christ. Don't imagine, as we are walking through, uh, through these steps to the cross and to the tomb, that, that Jesus is, is somehow not experiencing this in reality. This is, he's experiencing, this is a real man experiencing real pain emotionally and physically. He's not some unfeeling God wearing a human suit. He's feeling this. He's one of us. But it is also more than that. It's not just this anxiety that we see smothering Jesus. Is not simply this fear of death or fear of the torment that he's going to be experiencing. The fear of abandonment. It's not merely a physical fear of physical pain or emotional pain. The trepidation that Christ is experiencing here in Gethsemane and soon on the cross is not merely the dread of suffering, but it's the full weight of human sin. It is the consequence of alienation from God. The cup of wrath that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 51. So Christ is authentically human. We're seeing a human being go through this. Secondly, that prepares us by revealing this intimacy and trust that Jesus has with His Father. He calls Him Abba Father. The Abba is an Aramaic word which means which one would use to address their own father, their own dad. And it's with this term of of affection that Mark accents the fact that Jesus' obedience is not some mere resignation to what's going to happen. He's not just saying, okay, I'll just be swept along, I'll just wing it with you. That's not what's going on. Jesus is not simply resigning himself. But this is an act of unbounded trust and commitment and love for his Father. So Jesus is not just... He's not being force-fed this cup. Jesus willingly takes this cup. And he drinks this cup. He gives himself up. Now Jesus... His is the way of meekness and humility. We've seen this, right? It's on full display here. Uh, We see him submitting to the Father to the Father's will, to this wrath. And what we see in this picture at Gethsemane is Jesus truly as the Son of God. Keep those two things in mind as we walk through this this further suffering. That Jesus is really real. This is not just happening to some unfeeling God. This is happening to a real person. And Jesus is the Son of God. Gethsemane invites us to consider above all what it means for Jesus to be, in a unique sense, God's Son. The very moment of uh, greatest intimacy, this desperate prayer of Christ to Abba Father, is also the moment where hearing the answer no from His Father, remove this cup from me, and God says no. When He hears that, Jesus is set on the course for the moment of God forsakenness on the cross. Those are two things we need to keep in mind. The challenge for us is will we, will we be like the disciples who fail to watch and pray? Will you and I fail to heed Jesus' warning about the Spirit's willingness and our weakness? If we fail to take this weakness and willingness seriously, our sanctification will be hindered. We will grieve the Holy Spirit. And thus we will rob ourselves and one another of experiences with God. Therefore, we must see Christ as truly human and as the Son of God as we are led into these sufferings. And fight the fight, fight the weakness of our flesh that says, don't look at this, (laughs) rush by it, get to Easter. Fight the weakness of our flesh that says, you know what, you should give up fasting. You should give up the silly discipline nonsense. We have to fight that and we must embrace the Spirit's willingness and we must bend our flesh into that willingness so that we may know Christ more fully. And as we walk through these dark snapshots, notice this juxtaposition between who Jesus' accusers claim him to be and who Jesus, in fact, really is. The next, coming out of that garden, uh, where we left off last night, Jesus finds his disciples sleeping and he says to them, Rise, get up guys, it's time to go. My betrayer is at hand. And then what do we see? We see Judas One who's followed him, who's walked with him for the last three years, approaching. But he's followed by this mob. He's leading a mob, a crowd, it says in verse 42, or verse 43, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He's bringing these people. Now, throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen the religious leaders conspiring against Jesus, seeking to destroy Him. They've tried ensnaring Him through theological and ritual questions and different things like that, which Jesus has always been able to evade and make them look silly in the process while keeping and maintaining His own integrity. But here, peaceful tactics are put aside. They come wielding swords and clubs. They assume that Jesus will act like any other revolutionary when cornered, right, with violence. And they anticipate Jesus' revolt, expecting Him to take up violence at their coming. And why not? Jesus has publicly challenged the Jewish leadership. He has declared Himself King of, a God, of God's kingdom, of a kingdom that is breaking in to this world. Now, the expect, expectation of the Messiah for the Jewish people was that, that He would lead a military revolt, that He would cast off the shackles of Rome, uh, from God's people. And that, and so they were looking for somebody who was a military revolutionary person. But Jesus went too far. Jesus didn't just speak judgment over Rome. He spoke judgment over Jerusalem, over Jews, over the temple, in fact. Therefore, he had to be silenced. He had to be stopped. Now, if we're reading this snapshot, uh, it looks as if maybe their concerns are, are going to be proved right, you know, that they needed to come out with clubs, that the revolt was going to happen, because what we see is we see unnamed by Mark, but John calls him Peter, <laughs> jumping out to defend Christ, right? He's got to intercede to defend Christ from this angry mob that's coming at him. It says in verse 47 that he drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest, but this is not the way of Christ, this is not the way of his kingdom. Jesus has already demonstrated that the way of his kingdom is meekness and humility he demonstrated this the week earlier by entering Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And he declares it here by pointing out that he is not and has not been violent, a violent revolutionary. He says in verse 48, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Days after day I, will, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And with that, the shepherd is struck. And the sheep scatter. Verse 50 says, And they all left him and fled. Jesus is betrayed, wrongly arrested, and abandoned by close friends. They think he's some kind of violent, revolutionary in this moment. But he is not. He demonstrates the way of the kingdom with meekness. Now the next dark snapshot follows Jesus, uh, Jesus' trial with the Jewish leaders, the council, and it encompasses Peter's denial. So Jesus is before the council of religious leaders and he's put on trial. However, this trial is riddled with contradicting and false testimonies about what he has done and what he has said. Now, trials are supposed to, court, the whole purpose of court right, is supposed to hold up justice. Or not hold up. Uphold. <laughs> justice. <laughs> but everything about this trial, its midnight urgency, its false testimonies, the violence that occurs in the midst of it, it reeks of a lack of justice. It, it is not the way of God. Now seeing that this trial isn't getting to where it wants to go, as people are making their claims and contradicting themselves... Caiaphas, the high priest, asked directly in verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, embedded in this question are accusations. He knows, Jesus, you're a false prophet. He says, Jesus, you are the problem. You are the one who are leading people astray. You claim authority over the temple and you pronounce judgment over the temple. You can't do that. You are leading people away from the way of God. He's attacking their entire religious system. So Caiaphas is also then here baiting Jesus so that he can accuse him of blasphemy. Now Jesus has seen these traps throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? He's seen these traps before and he's successfully maintained his integrity without inciting violence. But here, Jesus does not speak in code. Jesus answers, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now I am, can, and should be seen as Jesus using the name of God that God gave Moses at the burning bush. He's declaring himself to be Yahweh. It's claim of his sonship and his deity. The rest of that quotation that Jesus does, Jesus is pairing together Psalm 110 and Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And this pairing is a bold declaration that Christ is the true prophet. That His claim over the temple, over His own body being raised, and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem would come to pass. This this statement, this pairing says, I am the Christ and you will see me vindicated. You will see me vindicated. And that vindication means that I share Yahweh's throne. He's declaring Himself. It's Christ, That's God. Now this was enough to satisfy the judge and jury of this trial. Jesus was condemned, deserving death. He was then mocked and attacked. It says in verse 65 that some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! Again, they're taunting him. You're the true prophet, right? Can you tell me who hit you? That's what they're doing. And it says the guards received him with blows. Now, Christ is considered by these people the problem. He's the one that is leading Israel away from the one true God. But Christ is actually the solution. He is drinking this cup of shame and wrath that He might rescue the world. That He might bring us to God. Now, they assume that Christ is a false prophet. That He can't identify His attackers, right? I mean, that's why He's the false prophet. Can't see through this blindfold. Yet, His prophecies all around Him are being fulfilled. On three separate occasions, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus foretells His his death. He foretells being delivered, handed over to the, the religious leaders, and being beaten, and being killed. He foretells this. And now we're at that moment. This is happening. He prophesies at the Last Supper that Judas will betray Him. And we saw, just a moment ago, Judas approaching and betraying him, with a kiss no less. He also prophesied of Peter's denial, which is happening as this trial is taking place. Notice that juxtaposition. You claim to be the true prophet, but you're a false prophet. And his prophecy is actually taking place. Jesus, the Son of God, is the true Messiah. He is the Son of God. And he willingly drinks this cup, it is not being forced upon him by these attackers and accusers. Jesus is willingly and obediently doing this. Our next snapshot is Pilate uh, and the crucifixion. The Jewish council didn't have the authority that they needed to kill Jesus, uh, especially since it was getting into Passover weekend. They couldn't get their hands dirty like that. So they themselves, well, so they brought Jesus to. Uh, ...to Pilate, who could carry out their murderous desires. And Pilate asked Jesus in chapter 15, "...are you the king of the Jews?" Now, common knowledge throughout the empire was sedition and revolution was not tolerated. Anyone who would claim to be king in the Roman Empire that wasn't Caesar would be crucified, would be put to death. Barabbas and the two people who are crucified with Jesus, those are these types of people... Uh, ...translations often translate their word uh, that they were robbers... ...but that robber, that word is is loaded. It doesn't mean simply that they were thieves... ...that they stole bread like Jean Valjean from Les Mis, right? It's, it's much more sinister than that, that. They are revolutionaries. They incite people and they're trying to throw off the government. But Jesus answered a Pilate's question, "...are you the king of the Jews?" Is really not an answer. It seems like it. I mean, it neither condemns him nor does it acquit him. Jesus doesn't defend himself against the accusations that the the, the Jewish leaders are, are giving to Pilate. He doesn't counter any of their accusations that are thrown him. He simply remains silent. And as we go along, it appears that Pilate is sympathetic then towards Jesus and would rather not crucify him. In fact, verse fourteen in chapter fifteen. Pilate asks the crowd, he says, why? What evil has this guy done? Why should I kill him? Why should I crucify him? However, the crowd is angry with Jesus because he claims to be the king, because he claims to be the king of the Jews. And what I find ironic, and why I I would say that that Pilate is not sympathetic to Jesus, is because he keeps throwing the term out, king of the Jews. (laughs) The very thing that's inciting (laughs) this anger He keeps tossing it out there. (laughs) I think... (laughs) So I think when we see... When Pilate sees Jesus, I think he sees someone who is powerless. I think he sees someone who doesn't maybe deserve crucifixion, but nevertheless, his luck's run out. And he sees this as an opportunity. You know, he tries to release tries to release Jesus. But what he asks the crowd is, in verse 9 of chapter 15, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? <laughs> Again, it's the very thing that's inciting them and making them angry about this. So I think, I think Pilate is, is using the king of the Jews as a way to jab these Jewish people. So he's kind of seeing this as an opportunity. Oh, so what if this guy dies? This is a way for me to stick it to these people. And so, Barabbas is released. They cry out for Barabbas to be released. And Jesus is handed over to be crucified. Now, once delivered to be crucified, the Roman soldiers show him no pity. They see a would-be king. They see somebody who's been deemed this revolutionary person, right? And, uh... They do what they do best. They're brutal, and they punish him and humiliate him. They dress him up and mock him. They dress him up as a mock king. They place a crown of thorns on his head, on his head. They beat him as they pay him fools homage. And the point of their mockery and their violence is fine, right? It's it's humiliation, it's degradation. So when Pilate sees Jesus as powerless, uh, we don't need to be deceived by that. Jesus is not powerless. It looks like maybe he's passive, but Jesus has placed himself here. Remember, Jesus' way is meekness and submission to the Father's will. So with great power, Christ is drinking this cup. With great power, Christ stands before his accusers silently. It's with great power that Christ is substituted for Barabbas and for you and for me on the cross. Now, the soldiers, they take him to be an imposter king, when in fact, Jesus really is the servant king described in Isaiah, taking upon himself the iniquities of us all. Now, five times in this chapter, Jesus is referred to as the king of the Jews. In verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 18. And it's always the Romans who are making this claim over Jesus. But they don't see Jesus as the true king. He's merely some would-be revolutionary person. who's lost the sport of his crowd. But by embracing the cross, Jesus embraces the fullness of what it means to be Israel's and the world's true king. Now the next dark picture that we see are the darkest moments as Christ dies on the cross and is placed in a tomb. From noon until three o'clock, starting in verse uh, 20, oops, sorry. Verse 33. Darkness covers the land. The land is dark. The time is dark. It shouldn't be dark. It should be bright. Noon to three. But it's dark. What Christ is experiencing is darkness. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Echoing Psalm 22, which we heard read earlier. Now, this is a cry that many mistook for uh, him crying out for Elijah. But they failed to realize that Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist. So, what they thought was well, maybe if he really is the Messiah, because they've been taunting him, if you are the Messiah, bring yourself down, save yourself. If you can't save yourself, how can you save the world? And so, here, maybe there's a little bit of a hope. Well, maybe he is the Messiah. He's crying out for Elijah. Is Elijah coming? Let's see. So, a guy gives him a sponge filled with uh, vinegar wine. But Jesus doesn't drink it. He's drinking a different cup, a different drink. Elijah has already come, and they've missed it. But we see here, in this darkest time, Jesus abandoned Abandoned by all, carrying the weight of the world's sin and God's wrath alone. And Jesus utters, in verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The crowds have jeered at him, not believing that he was the Son of God. But the Roman centurion, who has seen many, many executions and crucifixions, he sees the way that Christ dies. And he declares in verse 39, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now this is something we've seen before, right? This idea, this theme of sonship, serves as bookends for this passion narrative. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane cries out to his father, Abba. His sonship is declared. Caiaphas says, Are you the son of the most blessed? And he says, Yes. Yes. But that's taken. It's not not received by by his accusers at that moment. But at the end of his sufferings, as he cries out his last... Verse 38 says that the, the veil, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. That's a supernatural act. God is opening a new way to him. And it's through the person of Christ. And the person who sees Jesus as He really is through all of this, is not His disciples. It's not the Jews. It's a pagan. (laughs) A door is opened up for new people to enter the family of God. This Roman centurion centurion sees Jesus as He really is, as the Son of God. But the fact remains, at this point, Jesus is dead. The women, Joseph of Arimathea, says in verse uh, 43, that he was somebody who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was looking at Jesus and thinking, maybe this, is guy, maybe this guy is it. I'm going to kind of follow him. And he's watching these events. And when he sees Jesus breathe his last Try and and put yourself in, in, in their shoes. The women, Joseph, Arimathea, the disciples. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's not supposed to die. And He's breathed His last. How could Jesus die? And in disbelief and confusion, Jesus' body is taken from the cross and laid in a tomb. On the back of your worship guide, there's some artwork that I, I feel like it's disturbing. <laughs> um, and, and I brought it to Aubrey's attention. So <laughs> you can't blame me for it. It's a meditation of this moment, of Christ being dead, placed in a tomb. Um, as I said, I think it's disturbing, but I think also that uh, it, it's an image that helps our imaginations to see and experience something that the disciples felt must have felt uh, as they saw Jesus being taken off the cross and laid in a tomb, I want to to read a kind of expert excerpt of the uh, this thing I had from school uh, that talked about this, and it in this paper includes uh, a piece from joy that 's the name i 'm infamous for pronouncing people's names, Um, but in his novel, The Idiot, he contains um, this dialogue about this painting, and his character says, this picture, so you can look at it and think about it as we're going along, the picture depicted Christ, who has just been taken from the cross, I believe that painters are usually in the habit of portraying Christ, whether on the cross or taken down from it, as still remaining, retaining a shade of extraordinary beauty on His face, a beauty they strive to preserve even in His moments of greatest agony. But in this picture, there is no trace of beauty. It is a faithful representation of the dead body of a man who has undergone unbearable torments before the crucifixion, been wounded Tortured, beaten by the guards, beaten by the people, when he carried and when he carried the cross and fell under its weight, and at last he suffered the agony of crucifixion, which lasted for six hours. Now, truly, this was the face of a man who had only just been taken from the cross. That is, still retaining a great deal of warmth and life. Rigor mortis had not yet set in, so there is still a look of suffering on his face, as though he were still feeling it on the he- other hand the face has not been spared in the least it is nature itself and indeed any man's corpse would look like this after such suffering i know that the christian church laid it down in the first few centuries of existence of its existence that christ really did suffer and that the passion was not symbolic his body was on the cross His body on the cross was therefore fully and entirely subject to the laws of nature. In this picture, the face is terribly smashed with blows, tumefied, covered with terrible, swollen, blood-stained bruises. The eyes open and squinting, the large, open whites of the eyes have a sort of dead and glassy glint. But strange to say... As one looks at the dead body of this tortured man, one cannot help asking oneself the peculiar, arresting question, if such a corpse, and it must have been just like that, was seen by all his disciples, by his future chief apostles, by the women who followed him and stood by the cross, by all who believed in him and worshipped him, then how could they possibly have believed, confronted with such a sight that this martyr would rise again? Here one cannot help being struck by the idea that if death is so horrible and if the laws of nature are so powerful, then how can one how can they be overcome? How can they be overcome when even he did not conquer them? He who overcame nature during his lifetime, whom nature obeyed, who said, Talilitha Kum, and the little girl rose, who cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man came forth. Looking at that picture. You get the impression of nature as some enormous, implacable, dumb beast. Or to put it more correctly, much more correctly. Though it may seem strange as some huge engine of the latest design, which has senselessly seized, cut to pieces and swallowed up impassively and unfeelingly, a great and priceless being. A being worth the whole of nature and all its laws worth the entire earth which was perhaps created solely for the coming of that being. Now, he goes on for a while. But I want us to consider this picture, this image, over Holy, uh, over Holy Saturday. Allow it to stir your imaginations. For you to fear, feel something of the discontent, the confusion... The disciples must have felt. But also, when you look at it, understand that this is the wrath of God upon sin. That this is Jesus dead, having died in my place and your place. And as Good Friday would come to a close 2,000 years ago, I invite you to come and mourn with me a while. will come ye to the Savior's side. I'll come together and let us mourn. For Jesus our Lord is crucified.